0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: I'm doing great. Um, I'm pretty excited. I think more than just our parents are listening to our show now, right?
1: Yeah, you know, we're getting some more feedback. So you can look on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Listener Angie that's written in uh, before has sent us some really gorgeous pictures
0: uh yeah yeah i was pretty jealous
1: (laughs) yeah and you know i will say i just posted some more right now so if if you've seen the ones from earlier this week uh there are new ones up that went up just as we were recording the show which is also just before it's posting because we're a little last minute this week
0: hey you know stuff happens right
1: (laughs) yeah but so these are pictures uh In France, and you should, like I said, just definitely go check them out. But we also have got some more fun paper suggestions uh, from multiple listeners, so you'll hear those as uh, we work through them over the next few weeks. And then we recently had a really fascinating conversation uh, with the folks over at the Orbital Mechanics talking about gravity and our gravity show.
0: Uh, Yeah, yep. We've gotten a lot of feedback. I guess that's a a topic that a lot of people find near and dear to their... Hearts.
1: it is an attractive topic
0: oh man i was trying uh, to find it <laughs> I, was, I was trying to get the pun as i was talking and it totally didn't happen thanks for uh, picking that up for me
1: <laughs> yeah but no they were talking about uh, releasing these small probes when we were going around the moon with the apollo command module and that their orbits were very sporadic due to mass concentrations on the moon
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they actually said you know well if you were to Hang a plumb bob; it would actually be a third of a degree off from yeah. straight down if you were near one of these mass concentrations.
0: Um, I thought uh, that was really surprising. That was more than I thought.
1: Yeah, it's basically a train correction, mm-hmm. sort of. Right. Well, well, mm, yep. Yeah. Okay. Not really, but <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think I'm going to solve it like that because they ask what the uh, angle would be for large gravity anomalies on Earth. So I'm going to have to do a little bit of math. So watch out for that. Ooh. Uh and it actually reminded me, we did get some feedback from listener Martin, who's actually going to be joining us next week uh, hey. as, a, as a heads up, <laughs> uh, that talked about satellite gravity, where they actually use the change in satellites' orbits and relative positions to map gravity on planets.
0: So besides reading uh, all the feedback we've been getting, what else have you been up to this week, John?
1: Oh, I've been getting ready to... Go give a talk next week, actually, at the Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory. And so that should be a lot of fun. It's called It's Not Rock Mechanics. It's Experimental Seismology.
0: (laughs) That's wonderfully dorky. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and it's actually going to be the very last talk of the conference. And my point is going to be that due to limitations like vocabulary and all these things, that seismologists and rock mechanicists and... Uh, mining engineers and all these people don't talk as much as we should, and we've developed a lot of things independently that are the same.
0: Oh boy, that is so true on so many levels!
1: So, I'm excited to do it, and I've had a ton of fun putting it together. I will say, for a 20 minute talk, I bet I've spent 20 hours <laughs> working on it.
0: Speaking of overachiever, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it should be a lot of fun. Uh, but what about you? What have you been doing?
0: Well, all this, uh, all this talk, and you talking about. You know, the the conferences you've been attending and stuff has made me start to think a lot about my um, own personal skill set. And as much as I hated to ask you to do this, I really feel like I need to be taught why I need a computer and what I need to learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean... You know, it's it's easy to get new skills when you're in school, right? You just take a class, and bam, you've got this new skill set. But once you're sort of afloat on your own, I mean, grad school is a little bit like this, too. Um, you know, you have to really go out and search for what you want to learn and really commit to it because no one's making you do homeworks on it or anything like that. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: that's that's challenging. And one thing that I think even in grad school somewhat is still solved for you uh, but it's really challenging uh, once you're out either doing your own academic career or trying to lead a team in some business is defining a problem because right. you're used to having these problems handed to you
0: uh, right exactly there's no thinking about that solving yes but coming up with and this amorphous problem is a little bit harder um, so I really wanted to talk to you about that because you know spring break's coming up I'm not going to say I'm not busy but I have some work to do, I think, and, you know, I've chosen my career path because I like to be outside, but I do realize, like, a drunk uses a lamppost, I need statistics, and <laughs> and I can't seem to get away from this stuff that I don't know about when it ter- comes to computers. So, basically, I'm going to interview you about why <laughs> why people like me need <laughs> computers, and where do you even start when you can't define this problem, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a hairy topic because depending on what level of data analysis you're going to do kind of depends on what you need to know about a computer. And really, if you're doing some very large, complex data processing tasks, sometimes it gets all the way down to needing to understand how your processor handles data and instructions in assembly.
0: Uh, exactly. I mean, I feel this way when I'm trying to stream Netflix and it doesn't work that I need to know more about how Wi-Fi happens, but... <laughs> 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 but more importantly, you're exactly right for data, because I feel like just like you were talking about, you know, a lot of people develop these independent things. And if we only talk to each other in the same language, it would work. And sometimes this is hard because, you know, statisticians don't always know what a geoscientist needs. And I do know there are a lot of good uh, books out there. I know the Geo- Geological Society of London has a monograph about statistics in the geosciences. I actually just ordered it. But in terms of starting to actually, you know, play with your data and crunch it, it's hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so we're not going to go down all the way to the bottom level, right? Because that's something that 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 you have to work (laughs) up with to over a long time, really,
0: because you have.
1: You have to start kind of dipping your toe into these things and gradually get used to them and learn as you go, which is, I think, one of the best ways to acquire new skills. And I think I have this later in the outline, but I'm going to go ahead and say it now because it's really important that you have to have a problem to solve. You, it's. I've never had any luck sitting down at a computer and saying, I am going to learn uh, Java. <laughs> that never works. I have to say, I am going to solve this problem, and I'm going to learn Java to do it.
0: Uh, That's really interesting, because I don't think I had even thought about it in that manner. But you're absolutely right, because I knew, I mean, this was a long time ago, granted, I knew I needed to learn Illustrator ages ago, but I just knew I learned, needed to learn it. I downloaded it, but I didn't do it, and it wasn't until I had to draft a figure for a lab and granted, it was a triangle and it took me eight hours, but <laughs> <laughs> that was the problem. I needed that darn triangle <laughs> to illustrate my point. <laughs> and so that's how I figured out how to make the different, you know, polygons and then go from there. How do you shade them? All that stuff. So um, that is pretty interesting. And I guess that's going to be hard then for you to answer all my questions because. I definitely hate it in class when students are like, I don't even know where to begin. But that's a true statement. A lot of people don't (laughs) even know where to begin, right? And I think that's why some people get so afraid of science and math, is just even trying to find the problem to answer.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, that's where I think coming up with your project that you're going to learn with is, well, you can either find a project that you're interested in that's been solved uh, so you have something to lean back on if you yeah. get totally stuck. Uh, there are some programming books now that are more project-based that I can talk about in a little bit. Uh, but really, you have to pick something that's small and doable and that you understand and just start there. And otherwise, if you go to a Java tutorial or a Python tutorial, you're not really going to care about you know, the making a phone book exercise because (laughs) you're not making a phone book you're looking at paleomag data
0: right yeah exactly which is all magic to begin with so uh yeah (laughs) (laughs) um i mean i guess that starts out with this, this sort of first point which is what do we even need to use computers as geoscientists obviously it's easy for, you know, geophysical analysis and stuff like that. But you're exactly right. And I feel like a lot of what we could all benefit from is sort of just a basic database management. I know you're real big on, like, version control and things like this. And we all have a lot of data, no matter what it is. And Excel probably isn't the best place for it to live.
1: No, it's not. (laughs) As much as that hurts me. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things, especially... Well, you want your data to always be uh, recoverable, readable, right? Right. And how many times have you received data from somebody or been told, well, there's this data, but we collected it 20 years ago, and we don't have anything to open the file?
0: Yeah, a lot, actually.
1: Right. So that's the first thing is using correct file types. If you have a relatively small data set, you could use a text file that You're always going to be able to open a text file. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and we use you know .dat files,
1: which I think are basically ASCII text. They are. Just call them .dat. Yeah, that
0: is exactly right. Yes, they are just ASCII text files.
1: But those can get kind of bloated for big data. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are binary files that are standard, so you can have like an HDF uh, or NetCDF file. Those are very compressed, and they're standardized, there are ways to open them in virtually every programming language. Uh, Not Excel. But (laughs) Excel is one of those things that I'm actually worried about, where in 15 years, is there going to be an easy way to open a .xls file? Oh, that's kind of
0: scary. Um, So this brings up the point of this is why you need to know a little bit more about whatever you're using. Because, I mean, generally you're going to use some piece of equipment, and maybe you don't have a choice with what sort of output that it gives you but in order to you know chronicle this data for future use you need to understand how that even if it's an archaic output how it works so you can then convert it and we don't lose all this data for the future
1: exactly and that's one thing that i try to do with a lot of my data is after I collect it, I make sure that it's in some kind of standard file format, even if the file is huge because storage is cheap. Mm-hmm. And I would rather have that sitting on some journal server that somebody could go grab it later than to have them using, you know, Data Thief or GraphClick or something many, many years later to try to grab some data points out of this paper. It seems like a lot of wasted effort. Like, I don't want all of those hours that I put into my experiments right. to be not useful to anybody in a few years.
0: Well, I answered my own question. I guess the show's over then. That's that's why I need to know computers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and computers can make so much work so much faster and more robust.
0: So that's sort of what I gathered from a lot of conversations we've had both on the show and without, uh, you know, outside of the show over lots of beers is that you know, you want to look at the data from more than one angle. And it's sometimes hard to do that when your specific program that goes with your specific magnetometer or your specific whatever only outputs it in one way. Uh, and yeah. so that's your only choice. You're limited by what they want you to see, as opposed to maybe there's some other manipulation that you could do, some other correlation, something that will make you see the data in a different way.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you never want to say as a scientist, well, I would like to do this but the software won't let me
0: exactly but i feel like a lot of us do because oh absolutely right yeah (laughs) i mean we're too busy teaching we're too busy doing whatever else and you don't carve out the time to just physically understand the computer stuff which like i said is hard for me to say and hard for me to do (laughs) um but it needs to be done (laughs)
1: Oh, absolutely. And you can save yourself a lot of time just by automating even tedious tasks. So if you have to move a bunch of files and name them or you want to associate uh, geotagged data in a photo that you took in a camera with a GPS onto your geologic map and all this kind of thing, uh, you, you have a model of how you think something happened. And with a computer, now all of a sudden, instead of drawing a few models, you can run a simulation of a hundred thousand models while you're asleep, and have them waiting for you the next morning. Uh.
0: Um, I'm I'm gonna say that I've already made a note because I've had this GPS-enabled camera for three years, and I still don't know how to how to associate it with anything. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean
1: that's that's one thing that. People don't realize really, but if you have an iPhone or I'm assuming Android phones do this, Mm -hmm. but if you use them in the field and you're taking pictures of things, unless you have specifically disabled it, the direction you're facing and the GPS coordinates that you were at and the time tag are in the metadata of that photo.
0: Right. Right. Which is
1: also why you don't want to post things on social media that have that metadata left in them that you don't want people to know, you know, where your house is or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's the easy way. Um, and then, you know, my camera, my actual digital camera is GPS enabled, too. So it's got all this fancy stuff that it can do that I just, you know, haven't taken the time, time to figure out. But this is the skill set that I'm working on fixing. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah. And I, I, I guess I've got a question for you then is why are people afraid of trying to do things with their computers?
0: I think it's, it, it's like the same block with people in math. Okay, and I can say this because I feel like I did have this block. You know, it's, it's not, you're used to words. You're not used to manipulating numbers in a specific way. And so it becomes overwhelming, so overwhelming that you don't even delve into it. And I feel like with all these beautiful GUIs and everything else on your computer, if you just can't, like, punch it and make it do what you want it to do, it's too overwhelming to even try to figure out where to start. Hmm. Okay. That, that's 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 what I think it's that whole like you have to have a problem to solve and that makes it easier but it's just like students coming to you and saying I don't even know where to start and so instead of starting you just do something else
1: hmm. uh, yeah I, mean, I think maybe one of the problems then is you have this big grand difficult problem that you're trying to solve and you're envisioning that you're going to write some piece of software that looks like this thing you're using with a nice GUI and lots of buttons and that's generally not what we do as scientists, <laughs> right? We, yeah, we write these small scripts or programs to solve a problem. Uh, hopefully, we make them available and documented, but that has not been the history. <laughs> yes, of, I feel of like that, that
0: conversation works. is getting a little bit louder, though. So that's good.
1: But uh, yes, I think so, it is. Yeah. And but the the ideal thing, like I said, is just to pick a project. The, one of the first things I did. We were in a meteorology lab class i think it was my sophomore year and we had to solve uh i think it's the kohler equation seems right anyway and make a plot of it and a lot of people they said oh you can just do this in excel right yeah and a lot of people did and turned it in and left and i was like hey ta you know python i've been wanting to know python too uh this seems like a simple problem i have an equation and i want to make a plot of it can you help me do that And sure enough, granted, I was there about two hours. Yeah. But by the time we were done, I had a small script that would generate a plot of this equation. And I didn't have to open any program to do it.
0: That's nice. And see, I wouldn't even know where to start. So you're you're my TA for this. (laughs) uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, you need certain things in order to be able to, you know, compilers or whatever, right? In order to be able to write script and code. And it's just... You get a lot of bloatware when you get a new computer but you don't get a compiler. <laughs> so <laughs> like where do you even start with that?
1: Yeah, and that's where it's a lot easier if you're on a Linux or Unix based machine. So if you're on something running like Ubuntu or you're on a Mac.
0: Or a Mac. Yeah. Uh because Windows you, you can
1: you can do it on Windows. The tools to do this kind of software development in Windows, in well, traditionally they just haven't been as good.
0: Hmm.
1: And I know that there's probably going to be one or two people that are screaming at me as they're driving right now. Good. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I I haven't found a development. So there are some very specific development environments made for Windows. Like if you're writing uh, .NET, for windows applications that's a really nice integrated development environment okay but if you're just trying to write and compile some fortran (laughs) uh, it's not nearly as easy on a windows machine
0: right i mean does it exist yes it's just not wonderful
1: i find it easier to make a ubuntu virtual machine and run it inside windows
0: okay so what's the difference on a mac then (laughs) i i know a little bit about linux just from my meteorology background so you know I feel fairly comfortable in a Linux environment even though it's been a while but at least I have that starting point already but okay so Mac people what do you do there?
1: Well a Mac in my opinion is kind of like the best of both worlds. I used to run a Linux laptop and I got really tired of every time I updated something you know all of a sudden my sound card drivers didn't work and I spent a day fixing it. Right. Uh, The Mac you have a really nice uh, operating system environment like Windows. Uh, you can run all these nice programs in it. It's pretty stable. Uh, I like the interface of it. But the entire thing is built on a Unix foundation. So you can open up a terminal and bam, you're back into your Linux days.
0: I don't think I knew that, and that makes me sad.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you when you open a terminal on Mac, you are sitting at a Unix command line prompt. Really? Yes. Mm. And so all of the compilers, you know, GCC, Gfortran, uh, pretty much every Linux Unix command works.
0: I hate to say you're chipping away at, you know, me wanting that of Mac, but that's, that's pretty interesting. I didn't know that. And so when I opened my, you know, DOS prompt, I remember some old school basic, and, <laughs> but it doesn't do anything for me now.
1: Yeah, I mean at a at a DOS prompt or really in modern Windows, the, the prompt is just a
0: yeah. kind
1: of a fake thing. Yeah, it is. Um you use a different set of commands than you do in Linux and they're not very powerful. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Moving so, like, stuff you,
0: around, basically.
1: Yeah, I mean you can't write a really complex C shell script yes. and run it in a Windows environment. Whereas on a Mac, I can grab a C shell script that somebody made and run it no problems.
0: Uh, uh, well, okay. So you're already, you're already thwarting my, my quest to get new knowledge then because I've got this inappropriate Windows machine, huh? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, I think you can, you can totally do it on Windows. Uh, in fact, if you're doing Python, if you use the Anaconda distribution, uh, they have this really nice uh, terminal that is the Anaconda terminal that comes up that gives you fake Unix-like functionality in Windows.
0: Oh. Uh, Mm -hmm. So you
1: can do LS and all of that just like you could on a... Yeah. That's interesting. it's not totally lost. And I know that there are people that develop on Windows that have a set of tools they like and they're very comfortable with. I personally am much more comfortable on a Linux command line. You know, I like to be able to do uh, a OD on a file and look at the hex of the file and do all these (laughs) things that I don't know how to do on windows. And I don't think there's a way with stock windows to do it.
0: If there is, hopefully someone will let us know after this. Right. (laughs) Um, And that is okay. That's interesting. Um, So in terms of saying that, so I had Fortran 95 experience. I know that's dates me a little bit, but um, I think next week's show listener Martin will (laughs) um, back me up on that. Um, so well, these I mean, are... that's, that's
1: okay. There's lots of geophysics codes that are Fortran 77 that we oh, still use. Oh,
0: even better. <laughs> and I mean, I know when you're we sitting down to learn to learn that, it, it's the same thing. You know, you have these tiny little problems to solve. And that's how, that's how it's taught to you. I mean, you learn the basics of it. But, you know, I remember the one chickens was <laughs> one of our first things. We had to, you know, sort the chickens into the, their different colors essentially. So it was really great to turn in an assignment that was called chickens.f90. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so you've got Fortran and like C. Are there any other like languages?
1: Oh man.
0: I know there's a ton. <laughs>
1: there's there's a uh, oh there's an incredible amount. So <laughs> maybe we should start by differentiating types of languages. That's uh,
0: probably a good call.
1: So Fortran, C, C++, those are all examples of what we call compiled languages.
0: Okay. So you you have a file and you have to crunch it together to get it to do something.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you write what actually is a plain text file. You put .f90 on the end of your chicken program, but you could have put, you know, .shannon Doolin, and it would have been fine. Uh, It's just a text file. And then you run it through this thing called a compiler that i'll link in the show notes i gave a whole presentation on compiler basics one time Ooh. there are people that dedicate their careers to not only just compilers but specific parts of compilers
0: wow um see that makes they... me think that there's got to be something you can run on windows then but anyway well
1: so the compilers are so incredibly complex um but we get to skip all over all that right now yes, yeah. <laughs> and say that you have this program that you wrote in human readable language that says, you know, for I in range one to 90 print I. Right. And you can read that, you can edit that, but you save that file and then you're going to compile it and the compiler is going to translate that based on a set of rules into actual machine instructions that your processor can understand and do. And it's going to create what we call a binary or an executable that that is the program that you run, is the output of this compiler. And if you look at it, it looks like total gibberish and weird symbols, Mm -hmm. but those are actually instructions that the processor will run.
0: Okay, but you don't, and you don't have to do that. That's the job of the compiler.
1: Exactly, that's the job of the compiler. So it will translate your... To talking into something that the machine can understand. Right. Yep. Uh, then there are interpreted language uh, programs or interpreted la- interpreted languages. So this would be like Python uh, or Perl or something like that. Okay. R. Uh, these are programs that you write the human readable text and call it .py or whatever, and then you pass it to an interpreter. And the interpreter goes through the file, and it says, okay, here's this instruction. What do I do? It translates that into machine code. The machine runs it. And it goes and says, okay, here's the next instruction. What do I do? So there's no compiling step that's happening that you have to do. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a compiling step, because most interpreted languages now are actually what we call just-in-time compiled, (laughs) uh, which means when you run it, there's a compiler that's running slightly ahead of the program translating what you've typed into machine code. So it's actually running compiled code, but you don't have to do anything. It does all of this in real time.
0: Okay. All right. That makes sense.
1: Uh, and then there's some weird ones that are edge cases like LabVIEW, which is actually continuously compiled. As you're Ooh. making changes, it's continually recompiling in the background. So when you run it, there's already a binary there. It's a pretty neat idea.
0: Is that actually um, to your advantage? Cause I know I remember, you know, doing these, fortran programs you write all this stuff and you can't find out if you screwed up until you compile it
1: yeah so continual compilation will flag errors though really if you use some kind of sophisticated editor now you know not just vi or uh, basically how you actually type in the text file that Mm -hmm. contains the program there are a lot of editors now that will go through and look for syntax errors as you're typing without compiling, just because they know the rules the compiler plays by. Wow. Uh, I
0: did not know that. And I also didn't know that vi was pronounced. I always called it vi. E- either way. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, GIF, GIF, I gotcha.
1: <laughs> yeah. So then, well, okay. The actual – are the editor that I use for my Python even has packages that I can put in that it enforces uh, – in Python, there's all kinds of rules about how to make your code look nice so it's readable. And you can maintain it. Okay. Right. Uh, and it actually flags me as I'm typing. It says, hey, you have two spaces here. There should only be one.
0: Wow. And things like
1: – stuff that would not prevent the program from running at all but is purely aesthetic – my editor's telling me about as i'm typing which is phenomenal
0: wow that seems a little bossy to me but you know
1: uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh,
0: that's interesting okay
1: but yeah you're right if you do have a compiled language generally you try to compile and it says mm, no <laughs> yeah. you you forgot something somewhere in c check semicolons uh <laughs> so yeah there's all these little weird things uh But they generally do a good job of telling you what's going on. In Python or an interpreted language, you try to run the program, and the program will run. So remember, it's compiling in the background just in time. So it will run all the way up to where you have the issue. Wow. And then say, oh, issue, and crash, and give you the the trace of what happened. Wow. Unless it is a gross error. Like if if you mess up the structure of a for loop, it will not even start running. It'll oh, say, hey, yeah, n- nope, it's... nope, syntax error, this is wrong. <laughs> uh, so it checks basic things, but if something happens uh, at runtime, they say, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can crash and give you a runtime error.
0: Okay. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that was even a thing now. Hmm. Okay. Yeah,
1: now the big so, – so I guess – A lot of people would say, well, then why do you use compiled languages? That seems insane. (laughs) Uh, It's because they are so much faster when Uh, you're running them.
0: Okay. Because you don't have to suck up all that time with the real-time compiling?
1: Exactly. Okay. If you are doing, let's say you're taking this big matrix and inverting it over and over and over again, which is a kind of intensive problem Mm -hmm. uh, and representative of a lot of what we do in geophysics. Yeah. you cannot beat fortran for speed still really yeah
0: what is the latest version of fortran
1: oh uh, something like that Oh okay because uh, i said fortran
0: 95 but clearly when i was recalling it it was fortran 90 i think
1: yeah uh and the new version of fortran is actually object-oriented oh which is wonderful uh oh, oh actually no there is a Fortran 2015 now. Ooh. I did not know that happened. Excellent. Uh, the next revision is planned for 2018. Hmm.
0: That's excellent.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, See, so no people still use old... Fortran.
0: <laughs> so even my old knowledge uh, is still valid. Awesome. I didn't think that was true. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and so Fortran and C are pretty common in what we do as geoscientists. But there's a big but there. Hmm. <laughs> They have a lot more what we call SLOC or source lines of code okay. to do the same thing generally than something like Python would. If you are going to – well, okay, that's not always strictly true, but Python has a library for just about everything that you try to do. Okay, if, so they're
0: just sitting out there already done basically.
1: Right. If you need to fit a line, great. There's a library for that. If you need uh, to fit something, if you need to do an inversion, there's a library for that. Okay. Whereas in C, a lot of times you end up rolling your own tools. Mm-hmm. And that's good because you're rolling your own tools to be optimized for the problem at hand. Right. But it's, uh, <laughs> you, you. everything that you gain in computational time, you lose in development time. Mm. Except okay. for very specific problems. So it might take you a day to write a C program that runs in 10 seconds. What you could have done with a Python program that you wrote in four hours that runs in an hour.
0: Right. Okay. Okay.
1: Now, there are big exceptions. If you're solving the same problem a few million times, like you're computing receiver functions uh, or you're computing, you're trying to do some kind of ray tracing problem uh, for a seismic survey— if you're going to do that many, many, many times, it's worth your while to write the longer C program because all it's of that faster. time that the computer save adds up.
0: Okay. All right. That makes sense. But if it's just something that, you know, isn't that specific, then maybe it's better to use the script.
1: Yeah. Or, I mean, my kind of my, my dividing line for how I'm going to approach <laughs> a problem is I have to sleep around <laughs> six to eight hours a night. Can this run while I'm asleep and couldn't do anything anyway?
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And, yeah. So, I mean, there are a lot of problems, like, doing inversions on uh, friction data that I work on, where, sure, I could solve it a lot faster if I used a C program to do it, but I can also just queue up a bunch of them before I leave the office and start it and have all the answers when I come in the next morning. Right. So it wasn't worth my time to develop the more complex program.
0: Ah, all right okay well that's good to know um so I guess I understand that now um and it seems like those are still the the two main languages that I really ever hear anyone talk about like I said I don't run in your circles but (laughs) (laughs) um but in terms of I remember when I was working sort of in the Linux environment we always talked about Perl scripts is that even still a thing
1: Oh yeah, Perl scripts are still a thing. Uh, I think personally, I don't use Perl for anything because it is so utterly indecipherable. Um, <laughs> second only to Mathematica. Oh okay. <laughs> uh, I it it just has a really funny syntax, and I never have. Uh... I, I never have got into the syntax because I've never had an application where I need to use Perl to solve it.
0: Okay, so you can always do this with python.
1: Yeah, and if I knew Perl, then maybe I would use Perl for more things, but I don't and okay. I haven't I haven't found a good o- opportunity to learn it.
0: So it's really just what you feel comfortable with.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I know there are people that love to use R for everything. Mm-hmm. And I once again, I just I find the syntax of Python more appealing to me than R. It looks a little bit more like C.
0: Oh, okay. That makes sense.
1: Uh Java is kind of one of the... It's been around for a long time, so I can't yeah. say it's the new kid on the block, but all of a sudden it is incredibly important.
0: Yes. Yeah. I have I've even noticed a resurgence of talk about
1: Java. So yeah. I mean, the, we, we used to make difference? horrible fun of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, what was it was uh, IDL, I think, used to be in Java, and mm-hmm. it had that little bar on the side that showed how much memory it was using because it was limited at 512 megs. Yes. And when that little bar got towards the top, you had to stop what you were doing and shut it down and restart.
0: Uh, (laughs) Those are the days. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, and that's if your machine had 512 of RAM. Right, exactly.
0: Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. That's sad and interesting. (laughs) Right. But Um. no,
1: it's, it's getting really important for web applications now because a lot of things are moving to web apps.
0: Uh, yeah, which is also weird to me, but very true.
1: I, I have mixed feelings about it because I like having the program on my computer and knowing that it works now and it will continue to work unless I change something.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. As opposed to having it live out there where somebody else is pulling all its little strings behind them. Right.
1: Or where somebody's web server can go down and they go, oops, I didn't have a backup. Yeah. Yeah. That's happened before.
0: (laughs) Oh, God. They should listen to our backup show. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I hate about, and and this is funny because I am not a supercomputer person, obviously, but I hate in Windows 10 that I don't have a programs box anymore. It says all apps, and I have to click apps to figure, to open anything that I have. And, And that bothers me a lot. So I'm glad to know that that's not just me being old and stodgy, but... Yeah, Maybe it's and two of us being old and stodgy.
1: It could be, because then I go to things like, uh, I mean, this is not an incredibly advanced web app, but go to Google Docs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, this is great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I
1: mean, you and I never email Word docs back and forth.
0: No, not at all.
1: Uh, not at all. And there's actually a company, Agile Geo, uh, that... Now, one of my friends, Matt Hall, is heavily involved with. Uh, they actually have a new podcast that we'll have to talk about soon. But they make their bread and butter on doing uh, web-based geophysical modeling tools. So running a gravity Whoa. model on the web. Instead of having to pay for expensive site licenses for software that you have on one machine, you get an account and you log onto their servers and do your modeling.
0: Ugh. See, this is like Adobe, though, man. Adobe knows we all need it, so now we've got to pay for these things that are monthly, but
1: yeah. yeah. But then you
0: always have the latest version, so.
1: That's true, and it's maintained because yes. you're continuing to give them a revenue stream.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. Like, at first I was very anti-it, and then thinking about, you know, well, that's good. It's not this CD that we're all just passing around, and then we're five versions behind, you know, yeah. two years later, so.
1: Well, okay, so... I'm I'm pushing Python pretty heavy, but in academia, it's not the most common thing that people work in. Okay. And I know this is, uh, you know, the big M word.
0: <laughs> I was too scared to start talking about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is MATLAB.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I think it's the mat part that, you know, implies that you must have some extreme handle on all geometry and mathematics before you can open this program
1: (laughs) well so do you know the history of matlab
0: um i don't
1: it was started by geophysicists
0: Uh, even more reason it was
1: it it was a collection of tools that some grad students developed no kidding yeah it eventually grew into this giant company we had employee number two here giving a talk a while back who is a marine geophysicist
0: that's unbelievable um when did matlab become a thing
1: oh geez i'm gonna say the the 80s are probably when it was getting its feet under it
0: okay i thought it had been around a long time
1: yeah so i'm actually going to look it up right now to make great radio
0: Uh (laughs) (laughs) i'm doing the same thing i was trying to stall um (laughs) as I was looking that up. Well, I remember it was always sort of this thing like, oh, you could probably use MATLAB for this, but we're just going to use Excel. (laughs) Like, I feel like we've known for a long time that it's been out there and it does all this powerful stuff. Maybe other geoscientists don't feel this way. I do, mostly because I hang out with geophysicists. And, you know, it's out there and it can do stuff. But what can it do for me, you know? Yeah. Looking on the Mathworks, which is the company that makes matlab right even the front page talks about arduinos and raspberry pi things that you know i know you well we talk about all the time
1: yeah and well we'll get to that but so i I did look it up and it looks like it was around in the 70s as a tool they were using uh, but mathworks was founded in 84 okay so matlab i will say it's a it's a nice interface uh The syntax is a little different, but it's not bad. And it's a pretty good way to process data, Uh, really. It has a lot of toolkits that you can buy that are ready-made, kind of like these packages I've been talking about in Python. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, It does have a lot of ways for somebody that's not familiar with programming to use it. Like, you don't have to know how to write a, a command to import a file. You can use the import file wizard, and it will write the command for you. Okay. Now, that being said, even though MATLAB is a good product, I have a problem with it not being open source.
0: Well, I don't think their bank accounts have a problem with it not being open source. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, (laughs) I mean, is it fair to say that this was, I mean, this was really a groundbreaking sort of of first-of-its-kind program, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, this, this was a way to put really powerful analysis packages in the hands of academics whose job is not to write software, but to solve scientific problems.
0: Right, exactly.
1: And that, that was a fundamental shift. And we don't expect you to be a software developer that then is solving a geophysics problem for a geophysicist. We expect you, the geophysicist or the geologist, to be able to write a relatively simple program in this interpreted language that's going to solve your problem. And we know that you're going to have horrible program structure and horrible design <laughs> of your data objects because you don't have computer science training. But that's okay. You can solve the problem. So
0: <laughs> so I'm assuming that, I mean, I know I need to have a problem, but I'm assuming MATLAB's been around that there's probably problems I can work through much like you would in a class since I never had to use MATLAB in a class, right? I mean, I'm guessing there's tutorials that are actually quite good for this.
1: Oh, yeah, and there are a lot of classes that are based in MATLAB. Uh, I will say, so I had a job at one point where my job was to reduce cost by weaning people off of MATLAB.
0: Oh, just because the license is so expensive? or Because
1: the licenses are expensive. As an academic, the licenses are expensive, but they're manageable. If you're outside of academia, the licenses are outrageous. Mm. Um, yeah,
0: because I think I can get it for free. Through the university
1: yeah i mean depending on where you are i think one of the last times i looked you were looking in the you know the several kilobucks a year
0: wow if you got if
1: you got all the bells and whistles
0: seriously
1: yeah and that's per seat
0: oh Oh, okay Okay.
1: so i was so i was working with folks that you know we had 50 to 100 floating matlab licenses Mm. so that's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year Whereas by transitioning over to an open-source tool like Python, we were able to do all of the same stuff and eliminate that entire cost overhead.
0: Okay, so just with a little more training on using a programming language.
1: Yeah, and I mean, MATLAB really is a programming language, so it's just learning a different one. And you'll find that transitioning between programming languages is not really all that hard. Really? Uh, once you figure out that there are basic structures I mean, you learn about for loops and if statements and else statements, mm-hmm. um, then you'll learn about objects and these kind of design patterns. Or if you're doing machine design, you'll learn how to create state machines. But you'll really see that if you step back and forget about the language and write what they call pseudocode, okay. which is generic instructions to say, okay, computer, if this condition, go do this, mm. interact with this. Op-. So you're not using specific syntax. Mm-hmm. Then you can dive into any language, look up its syntax and implement that functionality.
0: I never thought about doing that at all. I always and assumed that you would have to know, you know, exactly what you wanted to say.
1: No, and so that's one thing that I really stress when I talk to people is the way to approach a problem is not to sit down and open a MATLAB terminal. That's that is one. Interesting. You should open the terminal when you have solved the problem. That is
0: not a workflow I would have thought about.
1: Yeah, and it's something that I think a lot of people make the mistake of. They sit down and they have say, I have a problem to solve, and I have a $3,000 laptop in front of me, and I know it can solve the problem. And they hammer at the keyboard until something comes out. (laughs) yeah. And that's why we have these, like, crazy, you know, thousands and thousands of lines-long programs that actually are, like, doing something and then undoing it then doing it again. And then, like, all, all these crazy structures. Whereas if you sat down with a pencil and a paper or got in front of a whiteboard with several people and talked about how are we going to solve this problem step by step? How would I tell you to solve this problem if you had a very fast computing brain. Mm -hmm. Well, first we're going to do this. And how are we going to store that data? Well, we should store it in an array that looks like this. And then we're going to have to solve this equation. OK, what method are we going to use to solve that equation? How are we going to implement that? Once you have that entire diagram done, then you just have to sit down and understand enough about the language to implement those instructions. And that's where the learning comes in. But programming is really about problem solving, not syntax.
0: I think that might get over the question you asked me earlier, the whole hump of where do you even start? You know, that's that's interesting because I've always thought about it with something in mind. Like, I want to learn how to use, you know, Python. Right. As opposed to, I need to get this data and make it graph this way. So, well, that's, yeah. that's a good... That's an excellent explanation to help break down sort of that fear barrier of delving into this stuff.
1: Well, let's look at a simple example. Let's say that you have some data that is um, distance from a mid-ocean ridge and age of the plate. Okay. And this is an example that was in a class I took, so uh, I'm borrowing this example. But... (laughs) So let's say you have this file that has all of this data in it. So just two columns of data if you're looking at it in an Excel spreadsheet.
0: Okay. Yep. I'm, and I'm you want to know
1: <laughs> what was the plate spreading rate.
0: Okay. So just okay. some simple math, but over and over again.
1: So, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, the first thing that we need to do is get the data in. So, right. we, would, we would draw some kind of block that says read data from this file. And you have to know a few things about the file, like how is it formatted and all of that, but those are things that we can find out, right? So okay, we're gonna read data. Now you're storing this data. Let's say we store it in two arrays, which are just lists of numbers. Uh, one that's distance and one that's age. Okay. Okay. Well, it'd be helpful if we plotted this data. So we'll make a plot, and that's that's gonna be the next step. Okay, well. We don't know how to implement plotting in whatever language we're going to do, but make plot. And let's draw a sketch of the plot, what it's going to look like. So we know that we're going to have, well, which variable we're going to have on the x-axis. Right. So we want uh, something per year. Okay, so we're going to have age on the Mm x-axis. Okay, so that's good. Now, the best way to figure out the average plate spreading rate here is going to be to fit a line through all of that data. Okay. So in elementary school, we'd pull out a ruler and Draw, you know, yep. <laughs> do, do the best fit by eye, uh, <laughs> which is actually pretty good. You get pretty close to what the computer will. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So then in Excel, you would, uh, you would click somewhere on the graph <laughs> and say something about a trend line. I have no yep. idea how you do it.
0: Yes. That's a, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so <laughs> then, okay, so fit a trend line is going to be the next thing that we need to do. And then we'll probably want to draw that trend line on the graph, and we'll want to display the equation for that trend line.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: End of program. Okay. Now you have each of these discrete blocks that you can go figure out how to do. So in Perl, how do you fit a trend line? In C, how do you fit a trend line? Mm Okay. It's a modular problem that you can figure out for any given language. So you've already solved how you're going to do the problem. You're not sitting there in your language and going, okay, well, I finally figured out how to get this data read, and now what do I do with it?
0: Gotcha. And that's, I mean, the internet has made this much easier now.
1: Oh, yeah. Every time Stack Overflow goes down, you know, millions of programming hours go out the window.
0: (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Um, Yeah, because, I mean, that's that's an easy, not an easy problem because, you know, I mean, linear regressions and all that jazz. But, I mean, I understand fitting a line to data, you know. And so I may not understand it in Perl, but apparently that's not really the problem. The problem is trying to figure out that you need to fit a line to your data.
1: Right. And I mean, that's a, that's a simple example. But now if you go to a more complex example where you have a system of differential equations and all of a sudden you need to solve the system of differential equations, yeah. at least you know what the equations are. You know what the variables are. You have it all written out in front of you. And now solving the math isn't the problem. It's solving the programming problem.
0: Right. Exactly. Huh. Okay. Um, well, this has led, this has broken down my fear of starting. I'll say that. Um, (laughs) there was a bunch of other things I wanted to say, but I think that, um, we've probably fulfilled our requirements for this week.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is going to be a long one. So (laughs) the the, the last thing I want to say is get a good book. Uh, and there are lots of books out there on Python. Uh, There's a book called Python Crash Course uh, by Mathis that's pretty good. It has project-based learning. So in the end, you're building a game of Space Invaders. And who does not like Space Invaders?
0: Nobody doesn't like that. Uh, (laughs)
1: Learn Python the Hard Way has project-based learning as well. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I
0: actually have that one open right now. Um, He yells at you in this. (laughs)
1: Oh, yes. Uh, and then there's another book that I really like, Effective Computation in Physics by Huff and okay. Uh I know Huff and Scopatz. I don't know if they listen to the show. If they do, hi. Uh, <laughs> the book is wonderful. It's it's very thick, and it is written for scientists. So it's not we're going to teach you computer science concepts. It is you have problems you need to solve, and we're going to tell you how to do it from STEM to stern. And also tell you along the way how to have version control, how to have documented code.
0: Ooh.
1: It's nice. an excellent, excellent book. Uh, I would say pick up one, two, or five of these kind of books Okay. and find a problem. So, you know, go through one uh, okay. all the way and then find a simple problem. Maybe you want to figure out how to read a .dat file and make a plot of a Zyderfeld yep. diagram.
0: Mm-hmm. I do, do want to do that. <laughs>
1: That would be an excellent starting point, because that's probably, in the end, less than 50 lines of Python.
0: Wow. Awesome. I'll act like it hasn't already been done in Python when I try to do
1: it. But Well, even if it has, that's even better, because you can, can do can it again.
0: <laughs> ah, exactly.
1: You can compare to how they did it. So you'll you'll write a program, and then you'll look at how they did it and say, oh, that's that's a lot easier way to do it, actually. Reading <laughs> other people's code is an excellent way to learn.
0: Ah, that is super awesome. Um, Okay, this has helped a lot then, and um, I feel less scared, like I said, and hopefully maybe some other people feel less scared to sort of take this on, because I feel like a lot of us that don't take advantage of these tools are not falling behind, but we're just not doing our science to its fullest potential.
1: Yeah, and, you know, we had lots of other stuff, like you said, on the notes that we'll talk about some other time. Uh, right. Arduinos yeah. and Raspberry Pis and all that fun stuff.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that.
1: Uh, but <laughs> I think it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, which is Fun Paper Friday.
0: Yay! I thought you meant it was the end of the show. That's uh, <laughs> favorite segment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This Fun Paper is fantastic.
1: So this was sent in by a listener. So, thank you very, very much, Andrew. Uh, (laughs) It's called A Few Good Men, Surname-Sharing Economist Co-Authors by Goodman, 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 and Goodman.
0: (laughs) It's so wonderful. (laughs) Uh, Despite the fact that that's one of my favorite movies. Um, This is fantastic, and... (laughs) It's really—the footnote is really the best, um, where they thank people for helping them out with them. And um, at the end of the footnote, it says, you know, the analysis and conclusions set forth are those of the authors. Uh, We do not indicate concurrence by other members of the research staff or the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve. Any errors are Goodman's. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Spectacular.
1: And so, though this paper sounds totally ridiculous— There are actually some sound things in it, which are why we try to use these kind of things for Fun Paper Friday. And Andrew has listened uh, long enough to know that this fits exactly what we're looking for. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Um, The first thing that I learned that's actual learning was that, um, I guess, in economics, that when you write a paper, it's alphabetically listed authors.
1: And that just seems... Totally bananas. Uh, Uh,
0: Yes. (laughs) And so there's all kinds of research saying that, you know, authors that have surnames that are higher in the alphabet get cited and stuff more. And that's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, just because your last name is Abrams, (laughs) you are going to have more recognition because they talk about the et al. bias. Mm -hmm. And this is completely true. You can be second author on a huge paper— But when somebody cites it in a talk, they're going to say, Doolin et al. showed.
0: Right. And it doesn't matter
1: who the other people on the paper were, unless you know the paper. Yeah. You're going to say, Doolin did this.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they talk about, you know, that the number of single-person papers, you know, is going down as we collaborate more, and so we should be happy about collaboration. But, you know, no one wants something for nothing, right? So...
1: Yeah, and I will say there are some mixed feelings on that. Uh, I think a lot of times the bar for authorship now is way lower than it used to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say that's probably true as
1: well. I mean, collaboration is great, but if you're just looking at somebody's paper and you go, oh, I'm an author on that, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's a separate <laughs> problem, but... <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: yes it is. <laughs> well outside the purview of this paper.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, and also apparently there was some group that combined all of the co-author surnames into a single surname in economics. So McNaugast <laughs> is several economists, uh, several economists combining their names.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Um, it also talks about when it's talking about just surnames and um, surname sharing among economists. They start to talk about what the most common surnames are, and Smith is the first one listed, which I think it's funny because it shows sort of economic lineage, I feel like, with, you know, Adam Smith. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was a funny point as
1: well. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there are so many great quotes in this paper. <laughs> it,
0: it really is. It's truly a very quotable paper. Um, they, <laughs> they delve into the relationships between, you know, similar or shared surname authorship, you know, whether it's husband and wife or parent child or just people at the same institution so a shared institution who happen to have the same last name um and in the section that says our contribution i love it (laughs) our contribution to this literature is twofold right so they believe it's the first time there are four economists who have shared a surname but we're at different institutions and we're not related to each other
1: as far as they could tell. They said they weren't interested yes. to spend the money on DNA testing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man. It's so great.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, and oh sorry, go what was the second oh, no, point?
0: No, nothing. That was it. Oh, oh well that um, was the second point, was the one you said.
1: So I think it's also fun that they talk about areas where we could improve. For example, the only one publication they found of a grandparent-grandchild co-published paper.
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. I think with people having kids later these days, that's going to happen less and less.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, But it's really interesting to hear a little bit about because there are so many people that work in the same field that end up married uh, or so many siblings that go in the same field. In fact, they had one example where it was two twins uh, co-authored a paper with each of their at the time fiancés who before the paper got out, they were married, which says something (laughs) about the publication process. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so it ended up being four authors, all with the same last name, two twins and their wives, and each couple, one couple was a lawyer and one couple was an economist couple.
0: Right. And so they point out that this Goodman paper is the first of its kind because they're all economists.
1: <laughs> right. So this was a really great find and kind of tongue in cheek points out some of the problems in publishing and attribution of work.
0: Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous and hilarious, but it still serves this purpose because it's absolutely true. Um, I mean, the last paragraph is just priceless, where they point out people, other economists, who should publish together, people who have the same last surname and the same first initial.
1: And uh, <laughs> yes, and I like the last one. We encourage yes. cousins, Erzo F. P. Lutmer, And Erzo J.G. Lutmer, Dartmouth and University of Minnesota, respectively, to consider collaborating for reasons too obvious to state. (laughs) And they also have a potential list of collaborations on their website.
0: (laughs) Uh, This was fantastic. Um, It's it's really good.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, yay, it's open access. So you don't have to be behind any kind of paywall to read it. You can just click the link in the show notes. It's double spaced and just a couple pages long of actual text. Yeah, totally worth it. it, It's, yeah, it's (laughs) worth your time. So (laughs) (laughs) well, thanks, Andrew, for that fun paper. And if you have a fun paper that you think we would enjoy or any feedback, want to tell us about your experience with uh, trying to learn computer programming or where your computer ended up after you tried to learn computer programming, (laughs) uh, how can they get a hold of us, Shannon?
0: Uh, Yes. Please send me any of those Windows compilers, Uh, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And uh, let's keep these Twitter conversations going. I love Post and Lion King clips, um, so <laughs> you can go check that out. <laughs> at Don't Panic Geo. I am at Shannon Doolin, and John is at Geo underscore Lehman.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.